Coming up, Authentically Detroit continues exploring economic fairness in the city of Detroit. Don and I bring last week's history lesson on Detroit up to date and discuss the financialization of our city. We'll also sit down with organizers Juan Carlos de Wiki Perez and Leslie Anai Vargas Lopez, as well as Jorge Andres Caceres to learn more about Southwest Detroit Restaurant Week. Keep it locked. We'll be right back. Hello, Detroit in the world. Welcome to another episode of Authentically Detroit. Today, we're recording at the Audio Wave Network Studio. We are a content partner to BridgeDetroit.com. I am Orlando Bailey. And I'm Donna Givens-Davidson. Thank you for listening in and supporting our efforts to build a platform of authentic voices for real people on the east side of Detroit. We want you to like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast on all platforms. So listen, this week, instead of hot takes, we've decided to sit down with Juan Carlos, Leslie, and the organizers of Southwest. Detroit Restaurant Week. We also have Jorge here, husband of Monica Echeverria. Did I say that right? Echeverry. Echeverry Caceres, the late co-founder of Southwest Detroit Restaurant Week. Juan, Carlos, Leslie, and Jorge, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you. Listen, thank you so much. I, I'm such a stickler for names and I feel like I'm butchering the names, but like y'all gonna help us. Around this, <laughs> no, we, we got it, but I mean, more than anything, we're grateful for your hospitality. Thank, Thank you, you for being here, Juan Carlos. It's good to see you again, dude. It's so good to see you, too. Yeah, how so? I want to ask everybody, how is the day finding you? How how you doing, Donna? How you doing? Well, you know, um, I'm still recovering from last week. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, we had a time last night. It we was, had a time Friday, that night. We had the east side extravaganza, more on that later. And I'm going to say we danced until 11 p.m. <laughs> with um, the greatest band in Detroit, um, the Larry Lee and the Back in the Day Band. It was a great event honoring some great people in the city of Detroit. We put a lot into it and got a lot out of it. Nice. How you doing, Juan Carlos? I am. I'm really excited at the same time, you know, like thrilled, nervous, slash a lot of bunch of different things because of the event coming up. And usually, you know, you're like just like getting things done mode so yeah. it's going to sleep late waking up early or a combination of both and like yeah just you know kind of like my my schedule being thrown off a little mm, yeah but it'll it'll all pay off in the oh end. heck yeah heck it, yeah i'm really excited to just be here yeah leslie how are you i'm good cold you know because of the weather change <sighs> but definitely excited about the event this is my first year uh participating on the event and well since the pandemic it wasn't like happening so it's really excited to be part of it yeah or hey how about you it's been a long day a long weekend but i'm happy to be here you I'm made happy. it i made it <laughs> after you know some yeah, some that's right failed attempts. gps said go left and right and I said, what are you talking about you know and i wound up going to somebody else's uh private property <laughs> <laughs> he just let me in. <laughs> he probably went to FCA with the with the uh, with the uh, where where, where are you, Chrysler? 
It was a big white uh, booth with oh, a yeah, car. Oh, yeah, that's Chrysler. Yeah, you they said, car. you can come here and build a car for yeah, us. Yeah, you can build a car. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. They didn't even, no questions. Wow. We're glad that all of you are here and able to join us. Listen, so so uh, Southwest Detroit uh, Restaurant Week made the news. Metro Times did an article on you guys. Have you heard? Have you seen it? It says, the headline says, Southwest Detroit Restaurant Week returns for Hispanic Heritage Month this October. So want to get your reaction to some of the things that Metro Times has highlighted. Okay. The main event, Southwest Detroit Restaurant Week, is taking place from Friday, September 29th through Sunday, October 9th. This will be a 10-day event, Juan Carlos. You look shocked that you this that celebrates various Latin communities that call Southwest Detroit home. There are 21. 21 participating restaurants that will join this event's return for its third installment after a two-year hiatus. Each restaurant will offer a heritage dish celebrating the owners and chefs' Latin roots that will only be available for this week. And... I'm not done. The last thing I want to say is that there's going to be a food truck rally at Batch Brewing Co. during Monday, October 3rd. More than 10 Southwest Detroit food trucks will... I'm, I got to be there for that. 10 Southwest Detroit food trucks will meet up at Batch in Corktown uh, from 4 to 10 p.m. So y'all are organizing this. Y'all are behind all this. How does it feel to hear all this stuff read back to y'all? It's great. <laughs> you know, it's great. It's evolving. It's still going on. I think it's fantastic. It just makes me smile. Yeah. It just makes me smile. You know, listening, oh, I, I, I had some questions. Like, you know, the restaurant week is 10 days. It is. And um, the Hispanic Awareness Month it begins on September 15th and goes until October 15th. So y'all do time a little bit differently than some of us. Yeah, you know, when you're trying to negotiate for a, you know, a Hispanic Hispanic Heritage Month, it was either this half month or that half month, and we got these two together, and it worked out. It's awesome. You know, I understood that um, there were many um, communities that celebrated their Independence Day on September right. 15th, and my right. aunt is Guatemalan, oh. and Guatemala celebrated its um, Heritage uh, Independence Day on September 15th. So as you talk about the history, I'm interested in exploring what that means to you also. Well, uh, Mexico's Independence Day is uh, September 16th. And for me, it takes me back. So like when I was little and stuff, I used to live in Mexico City. So they throw wow. like this huge, not party, but like a huge uh, like event of Viva Mexico. And you celebrate on the 15th at night. And then you scream "Viva Mexico!" and it's it's the best thing. It's 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 they make it at Zocalo, which is like the center of Mexico City, and it's a great event. And if you guys ever you know can, you guys should definitely live it. It's it's an, it's a one experience that I'll never forget. And I used to do it when I was little, so but now I can't. But I always have that memory. Mm. Yeah, I also grew up with that. Yeah, um, but I got here when I was nine, so. I, I kind of left the, you know, like, I think the earliest or the latest in my life that I remember it happening was like maybe seven years old. Because mm. it was like, you know, like I was also a kid. They wouldn't take me out at night, you know, to like stay out really late. But it was loud. It was really exciting. There were so many lights in the sky. There was so much food. There was so there was so much music. And it was just amazing. Um, it was really, really, really lovely. Long live Mexico. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Long live. That, that is amazing. Juan Carlos, um, you started or co-founded Southwest Detroit 
uh, restaurant week. First of all, how long ago was that and why did you do it? Oh, man, there, there's definitely a story. Do we have time? <laughs> yeah, you, you have about. Yeah. So Monica and I um, were really close friends and we, we became really close in 2017 when she was teaching a, a class on putting together a business plan. I was helping one of our like clients at the time. Mm-hmm. And um, we're just like really upset about a number of different things. I think like, you know, like we're just upset about a lot of things in life because a lot of things are unfair. But particularly at that time, we we're on, on like relatively frustrated that there was development happening in the downtown and Corktown areas generally, you know, like places are mostly white. And so we talked about what we could potentially do for us. We saw it as a challenge of like sort of taking not just voices away in the neighborhood because we knew that, you know, there were tax uh, prices increasing, which meant like meant that properties were like going up in value. People were not able to afford it, but just like a lot of different things in regards of how business, I don't know, like there was an increase in the economic development and solidity in other spaces that were not Southwest. I mean, it's not even even that. Like, I mean, you see it around the city, right? Like there's a lot of different neighborhoods where it happens. And so we talked about doing something. And at first we were going to do kind of like a cash map type of thing, mm-hmm. but then we weren't able to do that. And so we started, like we continued uh, talking about what we could potentially do. And restaurant week was the idea that we landed on. Um, we tried to do it a little bit differently to the main concept that comes from New York because we didn't want to ask the restaurants to decrease the prices because like mm-hmm. the price is already pretty affordable. Mm-hmm. And so First year, we just did it kind of like as, as a test. Second year, um, we did it with the added like exclusivity of like, you can only get this thing during 10 days. Um, and we learned some lessons. We applied them. Yeah. and But I would say that though, as much as, you know, it happened there with Monica, um, some of my, like looking back at some of her roots, like, she grew up doing so many things, um, things that I still learn up to this day, which I think Jorge, you should talk about. But she was like an organizer for the um, auto workers. She was like she used to do a bunch of different things, like even as a 17 year old that I had no idea about. Um, and for me, I, I, I don't think I'm an organizer, but I have grown in like being a youth instructor being in like smaller groups of like especially in communities where like there's a lot of uh, undocumented folks and whatnot and like i grew up selling cheesecakes door to door in southwest detroit and that like (laughs) that was just like i don't know it was a passion to be able to understand my family's struggles in a very different way in a very different light especially now as an adult which i didn't get at the time so i think it just happened kind of by magic that we both had our own experiences and they came together and we're like, we're mad about something. We're going to do something about it. And we did. Um, yeah. Jorge, talk, talk about Monica. And oh my God. She was just yeah. absolutely, you know, to you, you know, people who knew her were in love with her and, and she became your friend, like within the first two minutes that she would, she met you, <laughs> she would have talked to you. She would have known what you like. She would have connected with what you like. And she'd be calling you up the next day and saying, she's got something that you would want or like or need, or she just connected so quickly with people. It was just phenomenal. She was very 
organized. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was very artistic. And so it was, she was, art, she was organized in an artistic way. And, and uh, as uh, Juan Carlos had mentioned, when she was like 18, she wound up working with like the, with the uh, auto workers union to uh, help uh, union groups in Central America. And she organ she helped them get uh, state organized so they can do this sort of like international thing. And they, they, they admired what she did at such a young age that she's included in that uh, labor arch at Hart Plaza. Mm. She, there's a plaque wow. that they include and she's included there. Mm. You know, she was a, a surgical tech. So which, so she would go and help neurosurgeons prepare their surgeries and she would get all their instruments they would need for that surgery and they would ask for her and she taught and she was loved everywhere oh my god she was how long ago how long has it been since she passed it was at the beginning at the beginning of the pandemic right away 2020 oh wow so that was a pandemic loss right she went to work at uh at the hospital like on a monday by thursday and friday we're both getting sick and uh, and days later, oh. I yeah. am so sorry for your loss. That's um, what a tragic loss of a wonderful person. Right. Um, I have some questions about um, the heritage piece of it because I'm really excited about that. Leslie, can you talk about the heritage goals behind um, this? Because I, it's more than food, right? It's sharing your heritage with the broader community in ways that we don't get, we just go to Mexican town. So I think it's not only about sharing a dish, but it's also about like sharing, like for us and our culture and for me, and like, I know Juan Carlos can really, and also Jorge, it's when, when you cook something, you're not only cooking like, and I know a lot of people can relate with this, but you're not only cooking a dish, but you're cooking your traditions, you're cooking memories, you're you're sharing a little of your experiences and your heritage with someone else. So I think it's it's really amazing that you know that you get to pick something like a a dish that means not only it's food, but it means something to you, and it has a background story to that. And I feel like that's that's like something that that are people are going to be able to like really see with the event and then <laughs> kind of connect. And you're not only tasting whatever the plate is, let's say like a, like a hard taco. You're not tasting that, but you're tasting like the recipe and what came to it. And like, maybe, maybe their grandma like helped out with that recipe and that's how it came. So I feel like that's, that's what it means. To I'm excited about that. Um, so what, how will the food differ? The heritage dishes differ from the current dishes. I feel like they differ not only like on like you get to choose one dish, but you get to choose like they're not all like we're not all from the same place uh, in Mexico. So I feel like you can see that on the dishes. You can see like, oh, I'm from Jalisco or I'm from Michoacan or I'm like Salvadoreño or, you know, whatever you're from. So I feel like you can see that. Can you guys talk about the nuances within uh, the Hispanic culture? Because, you know, we we know it's not monolithic and we know uh that 
and 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 we're and we're still figuring out what the language is too. Like, what do we are we are we saying Latinx? Are we talk? Are we saying Hispanic? Are we saying Mexican? Like, you know, talk about how layered and nuanced the culture is because we know it's not monolithic. Just like Black folks are monolithic, we come from all different places. There are Hispanic people that are not from Mexico. Talk a little bit about honoring that nuance, Juan Carlos. Yeah, well, so first, uh, the difference between being Latin and be, or being Latino and being Hispanic is that Hispanic is just uh, coming from a country that's primarily Spanish speaking. So if you're from Spain, you're Hispanic. Um, but being Latino is very specifically being from like 20, 23, 24 countries, which are considered Latin America and not all Latin American countries speak Spanish. Um, here though, when it comes to like the more like specific geography of Southwest Detroit, um, I think that Jorge can talk about the culture, or not the culture, I'm sorry, the history of what Mexican town is and how it came to be, right? Like I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I, I don't know enough because I haven't lived through it, but like in Mexican, Mexican town, the way that I see it and like Jorge, you should totally talk about the history, but like Mexican town is a very small area of Southwest Detroit. Um, and Southwest Detroit is the general like area in the city where a lot of Latinos live. And so a lot of Latinos, like generally, you know, when you're not there, oftentimes people think, oh, Mexican town. And so they think that like a lot of folks are Mexican. Um, <laughs> the first year that we did Mex uh, Southwest Detroit Restaurant Week, Monica and I learned that there were people from Venezuela, mm -hmm. from El Salvador, from Guatemala, from Colombia, from Puerto Rico, from Cuba, um, that we're even Dominican Republic. Dominican Republic. I mean, like, yeah. I even learned about that there's somebody from Belize out on the east side, at, like Veginini's. Like, he uh, is from Belize. Yes. What? Yeah, I loved Veginini's. <laughs> I did too. I think, I, no, I think they changed the name. Yeah, did they? I yeah. think so. Um, but it's just like, there is even, there's even depth within, you know, the like the composition of what it is to be from one specific place mexico being larger in 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 area than other places you have like your more general regions like the north of mexico central mexico the coastal mexico and then you have like the south of mexico and each one of these places has very different flavors because of geography because of wealth because of other different things but it's very deep i mean it's just and diverse like, now, one, yeah. one of the things i'm hearing from some people who um live and work in southwest detroit is that certain historical um latino areas are now being encroached upon by um, gentrification like corktown um and other places, do you find that um, people are being squeezed out of the community and maybe moving into neighboring communities because of all the development and interest in Southwest Detroit? You know, um, there's everything is layered and very, everything is complex. You know, there mm -hmm. was a time when there was all, I think there were more uh, uh, Hispanics, Latinos, Latinx people living in Southwest Detroit. Right. But then you had issues about... Uh, uh, ice ice mm -hmm. right and people started to move away and go more down river but it's still constant it's still the the heart is still in southwest detroit and then you have people who uh, and you do have people who are buying property and mm -hmm. if they're renters there then it's going to be hard for them but it's 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 several things that are happening all at once yeah because i have a friends who live in corktown 
and lived in Corktown over, you know, generations and felt pushed out. And yeah. on, on the other hand, I mean, you can sell your house for seven times what it was worth. So that's good for some people. But others feel as though there's ten times, ten times. Right. <laughs> but that means that your children and grandchildren cannot necessarily live in the same place that's that's historic to you. And that's happening on the east side of Detroit as well. But it just feels like it's not really talked about as much in southwest Detroit in the broader community. Right. So Ford Motor Company has purchased uh, the, uh, the train station. station right. Mm-hmm. And so the property, especially in Corktown, has really skyrocketed. And if you look at on, on on one side of the train station versus the other side of the straight train station, the prices of the property has is different. So in the Corktown area, which is the other side, the prices and the values have skyrocketed. And on the other side, where you will see a lot of Mexican town restaurants, it still hasn't started yet, but mm. but it it can. I can't afford. I, I I wish we I wish we had more time for this conversation. Unfortunately, we're coming up on we we're actually past time. Juan Carlos, can you do us a favor and run down the events for Southwest Detroit Restaurant Week and where we can catch you? Where the folks want to meet you? Where y'all gonna be at? I'm sure people want to meet Jorge and Leslie and Juan Carlos. Yeah. So run it down for us. Okay, so there are two main well, there's two events. The main event is taking place during a lapse of ten days between Friday. September 30th? 29th. No, 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 the 30th. 29th Thursday. Okay, so Friday, September 30th through Sunday, October 9th. And the way that you participate in that part of the event is you go to different restaurants that are participating and you order the dish that is only available those 10 days. The other event that's happening is on Monday, October 3rd at Batch Brewing Company in Corktown between 4 o'clock and 10 o'clock. And I want to be very specific that the reason why we did it on the Monday is so that we could also open that up to folks who are in the hospitality industry because usually events happen during a time when they, they have can't to work. Love it. Yeah. Love so, it. Thank you. All right. Uh, social media handles, website. SWDetroitRestaurantWeek.com. Uh, Facebook and Instagram at SW Detroit Restaurant Week. All right, Ron Carlos, Leslie, Jorge, thank y'all for coming on with us and talking to us about Southwest Detroit Restaurant Week. Hey, y'all, if you have topics that you want discussed on Authentically Detroit, you can hit us up on our socials at Authentically Detroit on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can email us at authenticallydetroit at gmail.com. Y'all have to come back. We'll be right back, y'all. Founded in 2021, the Stoudemire is a membership-based community recreation and wellness center centrally located on the east side of Detroit. Membership in the Stoudemire is available on a sliding scale for up to $20 per year or 20 hours of volunteer time. The Stoudemire offers art, dance, and fitness classes, community meetings and events, resource fairs, pop-up events, the neighborhood tech hub, and more. Members who are residents of the east side have access to exclusive services in the wellness network. Join today and live well play well, be well. Visit ecn-detroit.org. Bridge Detroit is your news and engagement platform that is telling the stories of Detroit is rooted by community priorities. Started in 2020 by Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Stephen Henderson, the newsroom has already established its footing as the go-to source for hyper-local perspectives that asks the hard questions, brings accountability, and searches out real solutions. It's free to become a member of this award-winning news organization. Visit BridgeDetroit.com today to sign up to receive the news delivered right to your inbox. Bridge Detroit by Detroiters for Detroiters. 
All right, y'all. Welcome back to Authentically Detroit. We are so excited to continue our series on economic fairness this week. Donna and I are going to finish exploring Detroit's history and how that's led to the financialization of the city. Donna, Professor Donna Givens Davison, you laid out it. You laid it out so clearly for us last week, and we are so so excited for part two. So, Donna, take it away. Well, you know, I want to start with this metaphorical story that highlights some things. So imagine you worked all of your life and saved money and worked all of your life to get ahead in your job and you bought a house and you raised your family there and you got ahead in your job and then there's a new boss and the new boss brings forward racist policies and practices and you're demoted and lose half your salary. So the first thing you do is you cut is all the expenses that you can but some of the costs are fixed like taxes your house note your utility bills and actually some of them are going to increase over time like maybe you have stormwater drainage fees and the water fees increase but you're trying to hang on and despite these cuts you're a little short each month so you slow pay some of your bills you can't pay it all on time so you make arrangements and sometimes you forget to call And your credit rating starts declining. To cover these shortfalls, you try to go to a bank, can't get a loan, so you take out a payday loan. And the interest rates are usurious, sometimes over 300%. And you knew that was placing you in more debt, but you felt like you had no other choice. And so you file further and further and further behind in your debt. Eventually, you decide, maybe I should refinance my home your only asset. So you refinance your home, but banks won't lend to you. Um, You find a predatory mortgage company that will. (laughs) And um, the predator, that's all you can afford. That's all you can do. But the predatory mortgage company that you find charges you a low interest introductory interest rate, which balloons at the end of two years. And you're told, listen, at the end of two years, your credit should be better because you're going to make your house notes on payments on time. And at the end of two years, your home is going to be worth so much more that you'll be able to take out a new mortgage to replace this mortgage. And you won't have to pay that extremely high interest rate. So you take it out with a hope and a prayer. And then the housing market bottoms out during the Great Recession, housing recession, the housing market bottoms out your home loses all of its value you are struggling to make payments still and so your credit rating doesn't get any better and so your interest rate goes double to whatever it is from two percent say to 18 percent and now you can no longer afford the house note so you lose your home to the predatory lender and when you do you have the sense of shame And you internalize the blame and other people blame you for being financially irresponsible. That happened to millions of people across the nation. Not necessarily the racist boss thing exactly, but we know that there's racism in in employment. And we know that when there is a shortage or a labor contraction, black people are the first to be fired or demoted in jobs. But it happened all across the nation and it happened in a concentrated way in the city of Detroit in a city where we had the highest number of predatory loans and defaults anywhere in the nation because conventional mortgages were not made available inside of our city, even when people did have good credit. Um, 
But this is also um, sort of symbolic of what happened to the city itself, a city that lost so much revenue due to racist public policy, due to the financing of suburbs, due to racist redlining policies that did not allow black people inside the cities to earn the kind of, to make the kind of housing wealth that other people had and kept people constricted in this space due to racist building up of highways and infrastructure. And then due to the fact that the federal government stopped making um, grants to cities in the same way that it had in the past, the state revenue sharing was decreased significantly. Cities were losing people to the suburbs. Businesses were moving out to the suburbs and wealth left the city. We know this happened and yet we still blame um Black people for, I mean, the city of Detroit for the loss of money. We say, well, the city of Detroit was being irresponsible with the way that it manages money. Um, so an emergency manager was sent in. The emergency manager making something like $600 an hour was sent in to fix a problem with overspending and irresponsible spending. I think he made some um, comment about the city of Detroit, you know, living fat and happy and how we had to learn how to live within our means. But within that period of time between 2005 and 2014, we lost so much of our wealth, about 20% of the income that the city had before was lost. Um, and expenses were cut. So by 2013, we laid off about one third of the workforce. We cut um, salaries, we cut future benefits, all of those things to try to bring the expenses in line and adjust to the, um, the, the, the new realities. But also at that time, the city of Detroit during the housing recession suffered an, an extreme consequence of some predatory borrowing the city engaged in. While many people were borrowing for their homes, the city of Detroit was trying to cover losses of revenue by borrowing through um, you know, through, through bond borrowing. But there was a certain type of borrowing the city engaged in um, where the borrowing was um, the, allowed to exceed statutory limits because I believe it's called the COP process that the city was using. Um, they were allowed to um, borrow beyond that and ended up borrowing $1.6 million through the sale of bonds. Um, and the bonds had variable rate interest. So when you have variable rate interest, that means when interest prices increase, then the city has to pay more interest. When they are low, the city has to pay less interest. To avoid that risk, the city then sold credit swaps, um, which were um, designed to act as a buffer against increase in um, interest rates so that people didn't end up, have, the city did not have to pay more in interest. So with the, through these credit swaps, there was an agreement that if the interest goes up, the credit swap purchasers would cover the, the cost. Well, what ended up happening was the, um, instead of the, the interest rates going up, the interest rates bottomed out following the housing recession. And there was a provision in the credit swap agreement that if the city had its, its bond rating declined for any reason, and the bond rating for the city is like a credit rating for an individual. If the bond rating declined for any reason, then the bonds would immediately be payable. 
and there would be a termination fee. So the city was immediately responsible for paying not just the interest rate, but a termination fee and all of the projected interest through the life of the um, bond sale, which was, you know, putting the city at, you know, I think there was $300 million the city had to pay immediately to, you know, maintain its operations. Um, the, there was an estimate then that the city had was $198 million below um, the cash flow needed to just maintain things, and there was no way to get it. And so rather than go back to the predatory lenders and say, wait a minute, this was unfair, and you had a workaround in terms of the um, the, the city um, statutory limits in terms of borrowing, you guys kind of engaged in some predatory behavior rather than doing that. What ended up happening was the city declared bankruptcy. The emergency manager who had been assigned um, declared bankruptcy. And that took us through a process where um, pensions, pensioners were lost some of their pensions, where health benefits were um, cut for pensioners. And um, the city was able to retire about one point, well, I think about $7 million in a projected $18 million debt. Um, and people said, great, now the city has sort of cleaned up its actions. And now the city is going to be whole and we can start growing again because of all of the past behavior of the city that commentators suggested was, um, was irresponsible. But in fact, the borrowing that really put the city in this position was supported, celebrated by Wall Street, celebrated by the Detroit Chamber of Commerce, celebrated by the Michigan Chamber of Commerce, the Detroit News and the Detroit Free Press. The most risky behavior that caused the most immediate harm to the city was that which financial institutions pushed on the city as a remedy to falling revenues. We were willing to bail out Chrysler. We were willing to bail out the big three during this housing recession, but nobody was willing to bail out a city that was harmed by the exact same forces as automotive industries. Instead, they said, let's go bankrupt. While people who engage in predatory lending know they're engaging in a risky financial enterprise, they knew that was risky. People who invested in their pensions every year working for the city of Detroit had no idea that their pension benefits could be cut because it had never before happened in American history. It happened first in the city of Detroit. Um, that's, financialization is the increased dependence on financial institutions on lending and borrowing to maintain operations. It is the institutionalization of the values and expectations of bondholders. So um, in the city of Detroit, it's not just that people are engaging in risky behavior. It's also that in order to get a good credit rating to avoid this kind of predatory lending, you have to dance to the tune of people in bond rating agencies like Standard & Poor's in order to have your credit rating improved, in order to borrow responsibly, in order to protect the assets of your community. And in Detroit, that didn't happen. In Detroit, the bond rating agencies, even when we did everything correctly, the bond rating agencies said, well, we still don't think that you're investment worthy because the population keeps falling. That was their explanation then. 
we still don't think you're investment worthy. And there were all of these explanations. But now um, at the last um, state of the city, Mayor Duggan mentioned that and he's been mayor for this over the over six years. He said over the past six years, our bond rating has increased every single year. Um, and it's not because the population has been increasing in Detroit, which was what the bond rating agency said they wanted to see in the past. It is because of things like rising home values. And that sounds really good. Home values are rising, right? It's really good unless you um, live in a community where you're being priced out of your own neighborhood. It's really good unless you look at the fact that House increased housing values mean increased rents, which make it very difficult for many people to continue living in the city of Detroit. And the people we're losing are being lost in neighborhoods where home values are rising and there's nothing being done to support low-income people in the city in the same way. But that's what um, rating agencies want to see. Rating agencies want to see that you're investing in job training and they want to see certain things about your schools and they want to see... Um, you know, that you are bringing in new businesses and new jobs. And so for a bond rating agency, it makes a whole lot of sense to bring in a projected 5,000 new employees by spending $200,000 to assemble land for Fiat Chrysler. But it doesn't make a whole lot of sense for you to say bail out people who have um, unpaid tax debt. It doesn't make sense to do those things. So Bond rating agencies help determine what the public policy is, and the cities will do anything they can to chase a positive bond rating. When we go to the ballot box, a lot of times we think as voters, um, the public policy is designed to attract us and to meet our needs. But in fact, a lot of times our public policy is tethered to the interest of standard and poor's and organizations like that. Last year, we had historic floods all through the city, June 25th and June 26th. And a lot of people said we need more green infrastructure. But bond rating agencies don't value green infrastructure. And so you don't see the city, even through the infrastructure bill, saying let's set aside resources that will promote green infrastructure. What are we harping? What are we doing? We're resurfacing I-375. And we're getting federal and state support to do that. Good air quality is not measured by bond rating agencies. And so it looks to me like a lot of public policies that would be good for Detroiters are not good for the people who own our bonds. And most of the people who own our bonds are suburban people and corporations. So when you have that, you have the collapse of, um, of democracy in many ways. And that does not even include the privatization of city assets like the bridge, the tunnel, the water department, public lighting, um, brownfields, all of these entities are, are managed by private entities called authorities that are not, the boards are not, the leaders of which are not voted in by people um, in the city of Detroit, most of whom don't know who sits on these boards. The Detroit Economic Growth Corporation, who sits on there? How do they get appointed? How are they accountable? Who's How are people on Detroit Water and Sewage Department accountable? What about the people who own all of these public transportation things? And then what about the um, parking garages that we have sold off to private investors? We have increasingly privatized our functioning such that 
much of what happens to the city inside the city is benefiting private interest and not residents. That's financialization. A sobering lesson from Professor Donna Givens-Davison. We're going to take a quick break. More with Donna on the other side. Have you always dreamed of being on the airwaves? Well, the Detroit Eastside Engage Podcast Network, or DEEP for short, is here to help make that dream a reality. Located inside the Sotomayor, the DEEP Network offers studio space and production staff to help get your podcast idea off the ground. Doesn't take a whole lot of work to get started. Just visit the Authentically Detroit page at ecn-detroit.org or call Sarah at 313-948-0344. Bridge Detroit is your news and engagement platform that is telling the stories of Detroit is rooted by community priorities. Started in 2020 by Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Stephen Henderson, the newsroom has already established its footing as the go-to source for hyper-local perspectives that asks the hard questions, brings accountability, and searches out real solutions. It's free to become a member of this award-winning news organization. Visit BridgeDetroit.com today to sign up to receive the news delivered right to your inbox. Bridge Detroit. By Detroiters for Detroiters. All right, we are back on Authentically Detroit. Thank you, Donna, once again for providing us with that background. Um, so many, so many things come up uh, for me um, listening to your lesson, and one of the one of the things that is glaring is that um, a city is supposed to exist to serve its people, its citizens. And it sounds like the trend that we're seeing in the city of Detroit um, isn't people first, but our corporate citizens first. Um, And it 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 is that citizenship that influences policy and influences the way the city shows up in neighborhoods. Could you say a little bit more about that? Absolutely. I mean, if... You were looking at um, the metrics that would define quality of life for citizens. It would; those are completely different than the metrics of economic growth. The metrics for economic growth are really gentrification. Can we increase housing values quickly? Can we increase the um, average wage of the person living in the city and decrease poverty? Well, the quickest way to decrease poverty is for poor people to leave. Right. Because you're not poverty is always going to be with us. There's always going to be poor people in a capitalistic economic system. There have always been poor people and there always will be poor people until we engage in collective economics, which we're not doing right now. The question is, will the at poor scale, at scale is happening? Though, well, as, yeah, a nation, as a nation, we're not doing it. There yeah, are individual sure. collective economic systems. Yeah. And I'm certainly a supporter of those. God bless those people who do it, but that is not the economic structure of the United States. Mm -hmm. Okay. Facts. And so the economic structure is winners and losers. Yes. And the winners have never been richer in America. And the losers Mm -hmm. are increasingly poor. Increasingly, I mean, the biggest losers are probably people who are in prison who are making money for the richest people and not getting paid anything, right? And not being counted in the cities where they're from. That's right. Not being counted. Not being counted in the census, not having any kind of democratic power or political influence at all. Those are the biggest losers. But, you know, it runs along a continuum. But I think that when you look at a society that values, getting rich over everything, where the 
you know, we will never do anything to stop businesses from growing. We have a, a nation that is really addicted to economic growth. We look at, you know, how is the economy doing? We'll look at the economic growth and the economic growth can be growth that is um, animated by slave labor in China, but at least it's economic growth. Economic growth can be financialized economic growth where investors are able to engage in the kind of behavior that makes them extremely rich, but keeps some people extremely poor. And when you want to put limits on it, people say, well, why would you disincentivize creativity of American economies? Why would you, you can't put limits on makers and people who are rich are considered makers and people who are poor are considered takers. Um, except that these people that some corporations get welfare all the time. Yeah, they get welfare all the time, but they are deserving of our financial largesse because they are makers. Mm -hmm. They are the people who make America great again. You know, and so the reality is that you know, when you have that kind of economy, the people who matter are going to be the people who can afford to pay to play. If you are poor, if you're unable to really um, participate in economic growth and be a part of the economic growth engine, then you are looked at as a drain on the economic growth of mm -hmm. the community. The scripture says wealth brings many friends. That's in that's in Proverbs. <laughs> and it wasn't specific on, you know, the kind of friendships. I want to talk a little bit about you talked about the precipitating forces that led to uh, the housing collapse in 2008 and how that recession was exacerbated in the city of Detroit, especially in the high foreclosure rate. And I want to like bring to bear to people that in order for Detroiters or the city of Detroit to experience a high rate of foreclosure, that meant that we had to have a high rate of home ownership and not just home ownership, but black home ownership. Say more about that, Donna Givens Davidson. Well, we had the highest rate of black home ownership in the nation. Um, Detroit was a single family home city and most of the people who were living in homes owned the homes they lived in. So um, the tragedy is that um, the homes did not increase in value. Now, normally, if you own a home, let's say you own a home in Gross Point, every year that housing value is going to increase because, you know, it's going to at least increase with the rate of inflation. In Detroit, housing values were kind of flat. There was not increase over time. And I believe that Andre Perry refers to that as the black tax. There's certainly a drain on our economy when our housing values are not increasing in a capitalistic nation. But people own these homes that were not increasing in value. And then homes started to increase in value. Um, and this is where um, I think Yamada... Um, yo, yo, Kianga Ki yes. Taylor. Kianga Yamada Taylor yeah. talks about predatory inclusion, racist yeah. exclusion, and then predatory inclusion. All of a the sudden, there's all of this money and people who's who've not been able to get loans in their homes because banks have considered Detroit unbankable can now all of a sudden get mortgages. They don't have to have, um, you know, perfect credit and they're able to get mortgages. Now, that was the problem. A lot of people look at it as banks were irresponsibly awarding mortgages to people who didn't deserve them or were not um, stable. The problem was not that they were getting mortgages necessarily, although sometimes people didn't qualify in reality. The real problem is the mortgages that they got were predatory in nature. Hmm. They were balloon mortgages that people could afford when they um, took out the mortgage, but could not afford in two years. And the balloon rate always happened after two years. 
And we were selling people this false promise that if you own a home, by paying your house note on time, your credit rate will magically improve. And then your house housing value will continue to go up because finally Detroit housing values were increasing. But that was all done in a way to enrich people at the end of the line. Um, that kind of risky investment where we're going to sell predatory products to people, that was the investment that was risky. Not making mortgages accessible to people who were not allowed. When you look at credit ratings, credit ratings right now will say, if you own a home and you pay your mortgage on time, you can get good credit. If you're renting a home and you pay your rent on time, Credit rating agencies don't care about that. They don't measure sure it. They don't. don't track your cell phone bill. Sure don't. They don't track your utilities. What they track is the kinds of things that can make money for investors. Let's let's spend some time there because, you know, one of the things that is occurring to me in a city that has room or had room for two million folks right and experienced massive population loss over decades even before uh the rebellion in of 1967 right when when you see a city when you have a city that is shrinking in population to fund the general budget what are cities to do so like so how are we carrying this tension to with having the need to increase population in an equitable and real way and sort of decrease our dependency on like these financial institutions that contribute to our bond rating that we're beholden to because we don't have enough tax base to cover everything that we need to cover. I mean, let's not pretend like people just accidentally moved out of the city of Detroit. <laughs> Thank you. People were incentivized to leave. Okay. They got better um, homes New homes were being built outside the city. Um, there was infrastructure that was paid for, and everybody's infrastructure dollars. It's not like the federal government said, you know what, we'll take the money the suburban people pay into our pocket and we'll pay for highways. Or we'll take the money the suburban people pay in our pockets and we'll pay for infrastructure. Everybody, including people in the city, everybody's taxes went to pay for this. Mm-hmm. Okay. So this was the policy of the United States was to create suburbs of white people and to drain cities of white people. That was public policy. What public policy could have said, and in the past cities were considered too big to fail, is that when cities have a financial loss, we'll take care of them. You know, it was not until 1994, and I'll give another example, that the city um, charged paid for schools on a per pupil basis. In the past, schools were just funded based on something that was greater than per pupil. With schools, our governments created competition for public schools with charter schools and then said that you can take money from a public school into a charter school. Well, public schools, fixed expenses do not go down just because a student leaves that public school and goes to a charter school. You still have to pay for any debt the school has, any, you know, um, you have you still have to pay the school building, you still have to pay to maintain the school. And if a teacher has 17 students or 25 students, you still have to pay that teacher the same amount of money. So there's a certain level of fixed expenses that don't go away, not to mention retirees 
Also, um, you know, there in, in public schools, we stopped paying into the retirement system because teachers were no longer, you know, part of public school employees. And so the public school retirement system in Michigan almost went bankrupt. And the state had to use increasing amount of monies just to prop up the retirement system. Michigan public employee retirement system had to spend good gobs of money just to keep that system from failing. So um, we've seen our governments stop failure. We've seen our governments promote certain types of behavior. The federal government could have created incentives to live in Detroit. The federal government could have rebuilt parts of Detroit. The federal government could have made the state accountable for reneging on revenue sharing agreements. Where's Joanne Watson? Where is Joanne? But all of those things weren't done. Instead, Mm -hmm. there was a desire. Remember, the bankruptcy didn't just happen. It was planned in advance. Mm -hmm. It was planned in advance to retire pension debt because pension debt was looked at as as a burden. People did not feel like um, we should have to pay those pensions. People work for those pensions. Paid into those pensions. But when the pensioners are black people, Mm. when the pensioners are us, when the city is black majority, when white people even have a thought that a dollar that they spend is coming into a city like Detroit full of black people, you have public policy that reflects that their disdain. That's not their goal. And so, you know, never in America has anybody's pension been dissolved in bankruptcy, but it happened in Detroit in a public pension. And it's just not acceptable. Mm. You know, one day I want to spend a some time on this show talking about and talking to Detroiters about the the trauma that the bankruptcy induced on our psyche and you know how we're still triggered when we even when we talk about this like I feel I feel this so you know so deeply and it, 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 it the trauma is is twofold yeah one part of the trauma is that many people know that this was an orchestrated um, crisis. And that crisis could have been handled differently. If you talk to a lot of legacy Detroiters, they will spell it out, right? So that's part of it. But the crisis is also, the trauma is also that Detroiters themselves were blamed from this orchestrated Talk crisis. about it. You know, this whole d- diminishing Detroiters, this whole attack, it's just the way racism happens. I treat you badly and then I blame you for the consequences of me treating you badly. <sighs> I mean, this is exactly what I was trying to highlight in my in my story at the Secret Society of Twisted Storytellers around, you know, the narrative campaign that disparaged for so long black Detroiters who spent their lives taking care of this city. And are still doing it. And are still doing it. And are still doing it and still trying to find a way to get any kind of support from the city of Detroit. Um, in 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 real ways, right? We need to build affordable family housing by affordable. I don't mean this um, Detroit MSA affordable thing, which looks at what's affordable to people in the metropolitan statistical area, but affordable to people who earn a median income of $30,000 a year. What's affordable to them. And the mayor says they're moving into land bank homes and fixing them up. Well, you know, I did hear something really promising today. I uh, met with the new director of the land bank and she assures me that the mayor has an affordable housing policy underway that will help facilitate 
the purchase and repair those homes for low-income families. So I'll believe it when I see it, but that was promising because, you know, we have been fighting for that for several years, just fighting to say houses that are vacant inside of neighborhoods should be fixed up for families inside of our communities, and we need to keep people. Now, what I hope the mayor and others understand is this recent census disappointed everybody but didn't surprise everybody because we knew there were certain people who were leaving our community simply because they could not afford to pay their backwater bill. They could not afford to pay their back taxes. They could not afford to fix the porches on their homes. They could not afford to fix the ceilings that were linking. Um, because the other thing about your housing wealth being impacted by racism and prior to the, you know, the, you know, the predatory lending and all of that, Black people could not afford second mortgages on homes. And that's the kind of thing that you get to send your children to college. They don't have to take mm -hmm. out loans or to fix up your home. We couldn't afford it. People would not lend in our community. Um, and so then we had a period of time where it looks like that was going to happen. And a lot of people who took out mortgages to do those things then lost their homes. And, you know, it was not just a loss of a home. It was a loss of wealth. It was a taking of wealth. The wealth gap grew as a result of the Great Recession and the disproportionate impact on black people. The wealth gap grew. The homeownership um, home rates were pushed back 50 years as a result of this. Um, but people are saying the bankruptcy fixed things. I think, you know, if a single person who sold a single predatory loan went to prison, that would be one thing. But instead, it was business as usual in America, and there was no consequence, not even really fines other than corporate fines to big banks like Bank of America, which is actually one of the beneficiaries of the um, predatory lending that took place. Um, if the, the oh, we can start swap. naming them. But Bank of America was one of the big credit swap beneficiaries. Um, so that's one of the things I learned in doing some of the research on this. Um I think the other thing is that some of these concepts are so complicated and people don't understand them that it makes it easy to deceive people about what really happened. I think it's important. But people understand the loss. Understand, we feel it. We understand the loss, but mm -hmm. we need to understand that the city of Detroit engaged in the same kind of predatory behavior, um, lending, borrowing as many people do, simply because the city of Detroit was desperate for resources. We need to understand the city of Detroit was made desperate for resources by public policy. And we also need to mm. understand that the people who engaged in that predatory lending to the city of Detroit, which was desperate at the time, did not pay a consequence. Instead, they now own properties, the old Joe Louis Arena. They own that. They now have long-term leases on some of our assets in the city of Detroit because the city of Detroit or had to figure out how that are to, helping Detroiters right. uh, and not free funds, loan capital funds and yeah, I mean, all kinds of things, you know, and, and, and we're continuing to engage in excessive corporate welfare, trying to keep corporations here, trying to create jobs here because cities believe that the only way for them to be marketable is not to have more people but to have more industrial assets. There is not a suburb in the United States that feels like they have to bring in a polluting corporation in order to survive and pay their bills. That's the way cities are structured. If you look at the disproportionate 
burdened Detroiters bear on the Detroit Water and Sewage Department. That's ridiculous. So, I mean, we live in a an era of, you know, corporatization, but also financialization, because increasingly it is these debt bondholders that are able to bankrupt Toys R Us, <laughs> bankrupt Art Van Furniture, mm-hmm. not because they aren't selling toys or furniture, but because of bond deals that take place mm-hmm. that benefit a very few people and make them rich and bond rating logics that make no sense to average people and aren't for the um the well good of our nation. And what I'll also say is it's not just Detroit. It's happening all over the nation. Our government is increasingly financialized and it's happening all over the world. Look at world water systems. Look at Viola, which is all over the world, exploiting people and privatizing water. Everywhere you see privatization, you will find a financial logic behind it that doesn't make sense in terms of sustainability or the long term. Even our prisons. Even our prisons. Mm, And our school systems. Donna, Professor Donna Givis-Davison, thank you for the lesson. And we're going to have so many more conversations on this theme coming up. So we're sticking to this thing. <laughs> um, this is so sobering, right? You, when we, when we engage in these conversations, uh, you bring up things that, you know, some people haven't thought about, right? Some people don't remember and bringing up points that some of us are just now learning because of your teaching. Uh, thank you for remaining, you know, a true advocate and a real teacher um, and being willing to speak that truth, even when it's unpopular or not popular. I think that um, there is so much repair work uh, that we have to continue to push and do. And I'm not talking about performative repair. <laughs> I'm not talking about the resurfacing of I-375. I'm talking about real reparative policy. You know, policy. You know the thing that's so upsetting to me about I three seventy five, and the narrative that this is somehow repairing the past, is the fact that the same kind of people who got rich off of the initial injustice will get rich off of the supposed remedy. It infuriates me. If what you want to do is to create more real estate for more people to make money, more banks to have places to lend, more place for investors to land, just say that. Don't say you're repairing something that was broken by these very same people because I'm waiting for them to put money on the table and say, I'm sorry. All right, y'all. If you have topics that you want discussed on Authentically Detroit, you can hit us up on our socials at Authentically Detroit at, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can email us at AuthenticallyDetroit at gmail.com. I don't, I don't know how... You know, so I know it's time for shout outs. This work has an emotional tax as well. When we think about how palpable the loss is in this city and what so many people have endured, what so many families went through. Um, the stripping of wealth, the stripping of democratic power, um, this system working in the way that it was designed to disparately affect black folks and people of color. I, I wonder sometimes 
how <laughs> and the system don't rest it don't sleep i wonder how we're even stable sometimes when we're engaged in this work like it is deeply deeply troubling and emotional like it makes me emotional the you know no word no words you know um you can't fight a system you can't understand understanding it brings pain but a lot of times we just live with the consequences of what's happening and there's pain there too understanding so brings really pain. Mm. understanding does That's i mean crazy. knowledge is it's power true. but knowledge is also it's you know, painful knowledge is denial painful. denial is a great opioid right like that's not happening to me i'm whatever as people go through and there's a lot of people in this city who want to pretend like they're okay or like everything is okay because who wants to be on the side of the losers i don't look at us as the side of the losers i think that we will ultimately be the victors because I believe too many people fought too hard for black Detroit to be where it was for us to allow us to go down like that. But I think that we have to be conscious of and clear about the fact that there are many people who are still suffering because of these past policies and practices and um, worldwide. And I think there's got to be a fight against financialization. There's got to be awareness. And then we've got to go to these bond rating agencies and make demands on them. Because a lot of what they're doing is short-sighted. A lot of what they're doing is harmful. I just read somewhere that credit rating agencies are being encouraged to um, consider rents as, you know, part of the, the credit portfolio. And a lot of them are saying, maybe we'll do that. Well, imagine if we were arguing with the credit rating agencies and helping them understand the harm that we do. We criticize politicians. We get mad at the people we put in office without understanding the people who are pulling their strings a lot of the times are the ones we need to have, be having a conversation with. Um, because you can look at the policies of Duggan, Kilpatrick, Archer, Coleman Young, and a lot of times, look, and Coleman Young helped bring GM to Pole Town. They spent $200 million then. Removing. Removing people, displacing removing people. people. Coleman Most- Young brought an incinerator to the city of Detroit and then sold the incinerator to Philip Morris, the tobacco company. And you can't he, talk bad about Coleman Young I'm in this not, city. You, you can't talk bad. And I'm not trying to talk bad. <laughs> we he just say that he did it because he was trying to pay the bills. Kwame Kilpatrick engaged in those that credit swap because he was trying to pay the bills. And to some extent, the policies and practices we see under this administration are all about trying to pay the bills. The bills should not be paid on the backs of the people of this community. And when we understand that trying to pay the bills means that you do these things, then we have to stop always looking at politicians as a problem and a solution and look at the people who are charging us these bills. Mm. All right, Don, it's time for shout outs. I know you have a I know you have a ton. You know I do because it's the uh, Monday after the extravaganza and it was a great weekend. So I want to um shout out um oh, well, I'll shout you out, Orlando. You were the uh, great MC. You really kept it made it exciting. Um I wanna shout out Larry Lee and the Back in the Day band because uh, pew, they pew, were pew, pew. on point all the way through. And then when they played Jamaica Funk, I was like, this is it. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> shout out to Echo Media for um, really producing a great event and pulling together all of the pieces. And for Camille Johnson for working with them and um, really having to do all of the details. And you know what that job is because you've had to do it, whether it is trying to figure out putting together a script, putting together a run of show or a script and actually trying to get me to follow it. 
Um, <laughs> 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 the program book, the oh, the sponsors, and uh, and just you know the seating chart, all of that gets real complicated. So I feel as though we had a a great team. Um, I want to shout out the East Side for showing up and showing out and being there to celebrate with us, and then also for all of our honorees. It was. Um, everybody helped make it successful. It was we not was one on counter with it. We were on counter with it. And it just felt so good to be in the hood doing what we do and understanding that we could make our space beautiful and classy. People came dressed up. I mean, people look great. It was, you looked great. Oh, thank you. You did. I told you that on Friday. Yeah, I'm going to say it again. You looked really great. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, a great time was had by all. We had a time last night. Um, yeah, so shout, of course, shout out to ECN and uh, the extravaganza. The, it's Detroit's best party on the east side. Um, I want to uh, shout out, and this is probably a story that we will cover next week on Authentically Detroit, but I want to shout out my colleague Jenna Brooker, who broke a story about uh, the Maroons um, really just pressuring residents to sell uh their properties um a 90 year old woman a 90 year woman it yeah it yeah it's it's a troubling story but jenna is amazing and i wanted i wanted to give her some shine i also would like to shout out uh richie and clarinda harrison probably one of the sharpest couples you ever want to see in the city of detroit i will be sitting across from them at the urban consulate table this wednesday this wednesday uh, September, I want to say that's 28th at the Detroit Public Theater, the new Detroit Public Theater. So you can go to urbanconsulate.com and register for that if you want to see me chop it up with uh, some urban planners, Richie and Clarinda, but also uh, Detroiters, some, you know, f- you know, the best dressed, best looking couple uh, in the city of Detroit. Donna, you good on shout outs? You got any more? Yeah. I think that's good. I mean, Tamika Mays for her work on the design week with um, Clarinda um, Harrison and the bra that she created. We're going to have to have her on to talk about that. She's ready to come on. Yeah. No, she was there on Friday. She was at the extravaganza, her and her husband, Kirk. Yeah. Um, All right. That's going to do it. Until next time. Thank you so much for listening. We want you to catch the wave. (laughs) 